Welcome to Campfire Football. Welcome back. I know I haven't been able to deliver as many episodes as I want to lately. Been very, very busy. Coaching is picking up here. Uh, Still working on my own master's degree. Looking to apply for a job for um, director of coaching at my club. So I've got a lot of stuff on my plate. Was able to keep up with a lot of what went on in the international break. And there was a lot. I mean, there was uh, the under-21 Euros were going on. World Cup qualifying. Friendlies, depending on where you're from, that may have been or may not have been interesting or good and exciting to watch. Olympic qualifying. It was it was it was a re- really interesting time. Um, basically, there was some stuff that was boring. I think most of the games were just not exciting to watch. Goodness me, we need fan- we need fans back, especially for internationals. I mean, you can see how. You know, club teams, when they're playing in leagues, it's very, very different. They have this weekly grind that they're putting out, and they can still bring a high level to the match. But these international teams, it's very, very different when you don't have fans. I mean, just imagine Georgia beating Germany. What an amazing result. I mean, there were some incredible results, incredible games, a couple surprises. I was surprised by Turkey's 4-2 victory over the Netherlands. Um, feels like an eternity ago, right? I mean, they've all played three games now. Um, but Barack Yilmaz with a star performance, David Klassen with this kind of unbelievable turn and finish for the for his goal. But that game was fun to watch. It was I don't think anyone really expected it to be as good as it was. Luxembourg, not only beating the Republic of Ireland 1-0, which was shocking to begin with, but then I watched them play against Portugal because I was like, this team might actually be pretty good. I looked looked into them a little bit and... My goodness, I, they, they took the lead. They won one at halftime. Diogo Jota, who had a quite unbelievable international break, scoring a bunch of goals with his head, despite being one of the tiniest guys on the field. Georgia, whew, I mean, they almost, almost drew with Spain. Came so close. Took a Danny Olmo hit from outside the box. Spain were pretty underwhelming during this break. Uh there was not a whole lot to write home about, but at least they're not Germany, who lost to North Macedonia 2-1. Yugi Love, I don't really know. I mean, I didn't look too much into it, but everything I've heard from other uh, pundits, different people and podcasts and stuff, sounds like he made some very strange decisions. He, he kept the exact same lineup for all three games, pretty much started the same exact players. In the third game, one of the only changes he made, he only made two. One of them was the goalkeeper. Um just a very, very weird scenario. Um, th- there's something in Germany that's brewing right now. A lot of debate right now about whether or not Yugi Lev should actually be in the job for the Euros, considering he's going to be leaving after. So all kinds of things that they want to consider right now. Germany's in flux, and it's weird to see. Poor Timo Werner, by the way. I will say, Ilkay Gundogan, not the best pass to put it on a tee for him, because he did have to take it with his left. But let's be frank, Werner has to score that. And you worry, as a Chelsea fan, I mean, I worry for the guy's confidence because that is brutal. That is a tough miss to take. You know everyone's going to hammer you for it. That's rough. Armenia, this is pretty incredible. Armenia, uh, they're top of their group. Nine points. Won all three games. They beat Iceland 2-0. I mean, I don't think anyone would have imagined this. Armenia two, three years ago were finishing absolutely bottom of their group. I think they, they really struggled in the Nations League. Um, yeah, really, really incredible stuff that was going on. Other storylines, Robert Lewandowski gets injured. Now the Gerd Muller record that looked 
absolutely on the verge of being shattered into pieces like a bowl of china um yeah that that's going to be tough for him now depends on when he's going to get back sounds like he's going to miss both champions league legs against psg that's that's a blow so very much changes the dynamics of that tie but we'll see how Bayern deal with that and also how Bayern deal with playing against RB Leipzig this weekend one of the really exciting games to look forward to so hey um weird stuff happened look th- there was one event that kind of took over for like a few days um Ronaldo and his strop at the end of the game against Serbia where the goal that was a goal didn't count and look, let's all let's all just be real here. It, there's some funny debates going on. Just because VAR was not available and goal line decision system as well was not available, people talked about this blue in the until blue in the face. People were like, you know, it is ridiculous that you can in the World Cup qualifiers we don't have this. Well, for some stadiums it's really expensive, so that's why they don't have them. And so they decided. Instead of having it in some grounds, you have to have it in all or what. I mean, like, in the end, it, it's it's weird. But, look, this is part of the teething process of this stuff. And a reminder for us that, like, you know, that really, really should have just been a goal. And that's why VAR was brought in. So I'm glad that that was talked about. Unfortunately, because of the way Ronaldo reacted in the situation, that became a talking point for like two days. I think ESPN FC, despite the amount of games that were happening and the amount of storylines you could pick out and different players you could highlight or whatever, um, they spent probably 15 minutes per show over two days, so 30 minutes total, of a program that's not that long. I mean, that's about a third of their program. Talking about this and having a panel talk about Ronaldo. Um, it's disappointing when you watch a show and you're like, I mean, I, some of the people on there I like, so I pay attention a little bit. Dan Thomas is a wind-up merchant, drives me crazy. Wish he would actually try and get into the meat of things. But yeah, that was it was frustrating everyone talking about Ronaldo in that way. Again, that's the reason why VAR is there. Or, then the reason why we want it to be there is because we don't want such an egregious decision to be missed. And a player has a right to be pissed. And you know what? It's Ronaldo. He's like the most demanding player on the planet. That's the way he's going to react. I don't know why anyone's shocked. Or like disappointed or upset. I don't. I don't understand. Um. So, the irony, um, about all this debate is, and the technology is, guys. It's a COVID year. Like, it's a pandemic year. There's. I think a lot of people have just kind of forgotten that. Because, and I'm not really sure how because we're faced with it every day. But if you think about it, there isn't like. There isn't enough money in football to make this exactly how we want it right now. VAR is going to struggle. And on top of that, what I see from a lot of broadcasters is they're clutching at straws for stories because they need to figure out a way to keep ratings up. I mean, everyone is struggling in the, at the moment. So you're seeing a lot of weird stuff happen, strange decisions. But look, we will get out of it. Everything will be fine. And um, no, football will be fine. We will get back to it easily. All right. Um, here's, here's something. England fans, Mason Mount is really good. Can we, can we all finally agree on that? I think the team is very solid. They're very deep. There's a lot of good players. John Stones is not some kind of knob. He's not some mistake prone idiot. That's just going to cost you world cup games. 
The mistake that he made in the game, yes, he made a mistake, no doubt. He could have dealt with the situation a little better. But if you don't look at that and go, Nick Pope, that is a ridiculous, horrible pass. You you force your defender to turn backwards. That's not that literally I teach my 13-year-old players, you gotta make sure that you pass the ball so that your defender, when they get it, can open up and look at the field. You don't want them turning backwards. And that's exactly what Nick Pope did. Played a terrible ball. I'm sure that John Stone's sitting there going, Oh, that's right. It's not Ederson back there who can ping a ball exactly to where I want it. So look, Sterling's also a G. Just just keep things, keep these things in mind. And there were a bunch of players who were out. I think Harry Maguire was terrific. England, there's good things to think. There's, it's, it's, it's a good time for the senior squad. We'll get to the under-21s in a little bit, but the, that that's not a good situation. Let's move on to the Olympic qualifying. Um, congratulations to Mexico. Felicitaciones. Very well done. And to Honduras, of course, Mexico for winning the CONCACAF. Qualifying but Honduras for making the final, knocking out the United States, and also going to the Olympics this summer. Mexico's a youth powerhouse. They're, they're always really, really good at the youth level. They frequently compete at, in different tournaments and do well. They register for a lot of tournaments. They make sure they're playing in, in a lot. And they don't always do well, but they're present. And it's a good thing for their youth development. What happens at the national team level, I'm not really equipped to, to, to know enough and talk about why Mexico, just despite being the football mad nation with the amount of players it has, can't seem to take bigger steps at the World Cup stage, but whatever. Let me just give you a little breakdown of these three teams. I, I, I'm sorry, Canada, I'm just going to leave you out of it for right now because Mexico and USA were absolutely favored to be the finalists. And so I'm going to go over their two records and Honduras as well over the last few years, really their Olympic records. So look, Mexico did not qualify in 2000 and 2008. They won gold in 2012 and they were, they it's their third straight uh, Olympic games. That's pretty good. Honduras didn't qualify in 92 and 96. So these are early days and also in 04, but they've qualified for five of the last six. That's incredible. They were also in the semifinals in Rio uh, in 2014. They were in the quarters in 2012 in London, <clears throat> out in the group stage in 08. But you can see there's a progression that they've been doing. And so this is really, really good. The U.S., on the other hand, listen to this, qualified in 92, 96, 2000, and 08. So those early years doing really, really well. Didn't qualify now for four of the last five and a group stage exit in the only one of those, which was in 08. That's an awful record. Why? Arrogance. It's really just that simple. Um, and I don't, I, I, it's incredible. But listen to this list of players who are under 23 who were playing against Jamaica for the United States in a friendly and were eligible to play for this Olympic side. Listen to this list Reggie Cannon, Sergino Dest, Brian Reynolds, Chris Richards, Anthony Robinson, Brendan Aronson, Eunice Musa. Um, Owen Otisawi, Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, Daryl DK, Josh Sargent. Every single one of those players is playing in Europe right now. Every single one of those players was called into the U.S. national team for the game against Jamaica. Look at the Olympic squad. It is nowhere near that level of quality. But these are all under 23s. You don't even have to worry about bringing in some senior player. Maybe you bring Zach Steffen and stick him in goal. 
But other than that, I mean, you don't need anyone else. Maybe you bring a token older dude who's just really good at team spirit and is not going to play. I don't care. But how on earth you have that at your disposal and you choose not to use it, that's incredible. And look, if it has anything to do with worrying about the pressure that it might put on the clubs, is Chelsea going to release Pulisic or all these teams going to be willing to let their players go in August when the season's starting? Well, you know what? Qualify first and and put it on their plate. Here's the reason why. The idea that the United States men's national team should not make the Olympics like a number one priority, it's preposterous. It's completely insane. Guys, USA has not won anything at the men's level. Anything. Maybe a Copa de Oro, a Gold Cup. Who cares? I don't, like, no one cares. But somehow there's this air of superiority, this weird we're potential favorites in 2026 feeling. Like, like, what planet are you living on? No. You know how many golden generations have come and gone and not won anything despite how amazing they are? And they're better than this. So it's a very, very strange thing. I don't know why we don't take it as seriously, the, uh, you know, the Olympic Games for the men's side. Because on the women's side, it is a it is just it is one step less than the World Cup. It's just, The World Cup's number one. Close seconds to the Olympics. Everything else are just tournaments to just rack up trophies, you know, assert your dominance, play well. Okay, the women's team is dominant, but they still treat the Olympics as that's a trophy we want to win because it's available and it's it's got – there's eyeballs. It's a big deal. For some reason, the U.S. Federation doesn't seem to understand that if you actually take the Olympics seriously, then you're going to actually get – Eyeballs. People, viewers are going to see soccer. Because think of how many people watch the Olympics every four years and watch sports they have never seen or that they only watch every four years and they really, they tune out day after. They're not watching decathlon. They're not paying attention to what's going on in gymnastics. They're not like, oh, I should take up curling. No, no. Most of the time, none of that. They just tune in for a month. So if you put your men's soccer team in there and you're able to bring in these big names, these players that are all around Europe who are like, we're here to win this thing, a lot of people are going to watch and pay attention. Then you get sponsorship dollars and all that. It seems like a win-win to me to prioritize this tournament. Yet the U.S. didn't do it, and they were very much labeled arrogant by other people, by the other coaches. Uh, assistant Mexican coach uh, said that just talking to – Latin American TV, I don't remember which channel, he, he basically was like, look, it's very arrogant of them to, you know, to think that they could come here totally unprepared and, and you know, they brought players, MLS players who have not been playing. Meanwhile, they've got a bunch of guys from Europe who are in great shape and they didn't use them. So we don't know. Just very arrogant. Where does this, where does this arrogance come from? I really want to know. Let me take a little trip down memory lane for a lot of Americans to see if if this makes any sense. Because I've spoken to some people and they're like, oh yeah, that's right, that, that kind of was the moment. So look, the 90s era USA teams, they were built with like this identity of being workmanlike. You know, there was, there was grit, they were underdogs, party crashers. Not party poopers like the team that plays ugly, horrible football and just ruins the day and fouls and is dark arts. No, the United States came in to kind of overtake the show. Like, we're not the better team, but we're going to win because we're just going to go all out. We're just going to give it everything we got. And that was, I think, a romantic concept for a lot of a lot of people 
everyone I know, that's what they say they loved about the old U.S. teams. And everyone's like, oh, man, that 2002 team that made it to the quarterfinals. Oh, man, that was the moment for us. That's when we, that's when we put our name on the map. Okay. That's when you think you put your name on the map. Being French and English, I know full well the rest of the world looked at that World Cup and saw you get knocked out in the corners just like a bunch of other teams get knocked out along the course of the competition. You were not special in any way. At the end of the tournament, Brazilian Ronaldo ends up the hero. But people in America were like, dude, could have been us, man. Because if that handball against Germany, could have been us. Okay, good. You played well against Germany. But if we go back to the beginning of that tournament, the U.S. takes a 3-0 lead against the Portugal Golden Generation. That team flips the switch. They get up to 3-2 and just can't quite score. The U.S. holds on for dear life and has a historic great 3-2 win. It was close. It could have easily not ended up in a victory, and those three points could have just been won. But, yeah, great stuff. Second game, they play against South Korea, who were absolutely terrific. I remember watching that game and be like, I don't know how the U.S. is going to survive this. Because they took a lead, South Korea tied it up, and then it just was just wave after wave after wave of pressure, ended 1-1. The U.S. now has four points. Great shape. They lose on the final day to Poland, 3-1. And the only reason they make it through is because Portugal just totally imploded against South Korea. They had like, go check out the highlights of that game. They had like two red cards, one I mean, pushing the referee. It was not good. And the U.S. managed to get through. In the round of 16, they play Mexico, which is a, the best draw you can ask for, for for the United States. This is a game you're already prepared for. You don't need to do your homework. You know, you've played this team so many times, you just need to go out there and deliver. You don't have to worry about all these other players that you've never faced before. So it was kind of like a freebie, right? Not that it's an easy game, but it feels like a 50-50, which is great at the round of 16. Then you go, you play Germany, you've had the confidence, you've gotten this far, you play a good game, you narrowly lose, you play well. And we've been hanging our hat on that ever since. Because in 06, it was a total disaster. They went into the tournament ranked third in the world and crashed out pretty spectacularly in the group stages. Just got absolutely destroyed. Funny thing was, we we ended up beating Brazil in the Gold Cup at some point. So that was a nice moment. We also beat Spain in the 09 Confederations Cup. And they went on to be world champions the next year. So we were like, oh, like we can do anything. Look, it's amazing. It's possible. And then the next World Cups were fine. 2010, 2014, they weren't bad. They were pretty decent. Getting out of the group stages both times, there was the England game, the the the, the Slovenia comeback, and then the Algeria moment in 2010 out against Ghana, a story, you know, one of the story teams. Then 2014, not bad either, but it wasn't really overwhelming. There was that game that got us knocked out where Tim Howard had to make like record number of saves. And Chris Wondolowski misses a chance late that would have, I think, late in the next time that would have equalized and maybe taken it to penalties. But he didn't. And again, people were like, if that chance had gone in, we would have gone to penalties and then we probably would have won. And then stop making stuff up. Like, look at where you're at. See where we're at. We don't we don't qualify for the Olympics on the men's side. We don't win tournaments of any kind. So how do you prepare yourself in that way to win a World Cup when it comes to your home soil? This was the worst way to do it. So that's the wrap on USA. I just had to give you my opinion and also just give a little sense of understanding that there's still a long way to go. I mean, being a coach in this country, I tell you, I'm, I'm all in on growing American soccer and making it better. But the attitude from fans and onlookers has got to change a little bit. It just has to because we're turning into England over here. I think people are watching way too much British 
football coverage and think that our attitude should be like theirs, which is not a good place to go, believe me. All right, the Euro under-21s, the under-21 Euros, I should say. This has been a really fun competition. It's kind of weird. They're doing the group stage right now, and then they then they're wrapping that up. They're wrapping up the competition later. So it's 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 kind of it's kind of weird, but it's been pretty good. Uh, there's been some quality matches. Cool to see some names you'd never heard of before. Some some cool talent. Um, some solid teams. I've been really really impressed with Portugal. Been really impressed with Holland. Holland beat Hungary six one. Go look at the goals in that game. Incredible. But Portugal. Man, if they have a golden generation that is currently brewing, it's in the pot, it's simmering, it's coming up because that team was ridiculous. And there's a bunch of kids that could be in the under 21s or in the under 23 side who are in the senior team getting regular minutes and playing really well at club level and at international level. So, Portugal, I'm telling you, if it's not this summer in the Euros or in Qatar, it's in a few years, they're going to be one of the juggernauts of world football just based on the talent. And now England. I got to mention this. I mean, Eddie Bothroyd, he's had this job for a while. He's now got such an absurd rich of talent, like rich as a talent, that it, it's it's now like he has to really perform. He just can't be the nice guy that helps progress these guys up to senior level. These guys need to be winning a competition with the squad they have. And they look awful. They look really bad. So it looks like he's going to lose his job, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot of pressure on that. And I've heard this thing, this idea that Frank Lampard might be the one to take over the under-21s if he leaves. And I think that would be a really good job for Lampard. I think coaching at the highest level is not always the best idea. Take a look at Brendan Rodgers. A, a lot of major coaches have cut their teeth in at lower levels or in academy levels. You get your first coaching job of a pro team and then the second one of the biggest, one of the biggest clubs in the world, most cutthroat. It can be really, really difficult. I think you need time coaching. And there's still the pressure of performing at that international level. But you're also scouting. You're working with players. You're probably moving around. You have a little more freedom. And who knows? Maybe it could be a good job for him. Maybe not being on the field every day would be the thing that hurts him most. Who knows? But we'll see. So thanks so much, everyone, for stopping in. There's a cracking weekend of matches. I, I don't want to get into them. I just want to get into it at the end of the weekend or maybe even uh, tomorrow night. But marquee fixture has to be um, RB Leipzig against Bayern Munich. And then there's also a top-of-the-table class in France, France between PSG and Lille. My boys Lille, I got to say, I'm not, I'm not too confident. PSG look really, really up for it, ready to go to close out the title race and make a real push for the Champions League. All right, everybody. Thanks for stopping by. This is Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. Have a wonderful weekend.